1: Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And on this episode, I'm in Eastbourne talking to Eddie Izzard about comedy, watchers and being the most boring person in Britain. Marathon runner, Europhile, he's performed in French, German, Spanish, Russian and Arabic, as well as English, actor, gender fluid and of course one of the funniest men in Britain. He's also a political activist and I've spent many days on the road campaigning with Eddie during elections to try and get Labour MPs elected to the House of Commons. More
2: on that in his interview. Eddie, great to see you again. Good to see you. I should say why I'm in Eastbourne as well. Please do. I'm doing charity shows here, that's what I'm doing. Which the charity show? Well, it, it's kind of beautiful. I do Dickens. I'm bizarrely 150 years to the day younger than Dickens. I'm dyslexic. I'm a, I'm a high-functioning dyslexic, severely atypically dyslexic. I've been measured at this. So uh, my spelling was all over the place, and, but they didn't work it out until a lot later. I'd never read a book, a great work of literature, ever in my life. Maybe a lot of people are like that. Uh, and then I thought, well, I have this link with Dickens. I'm 150 years exactly younger than him. Oh, why didn't I do an audio book? And then they, we do a financial deal. Then they say, well, we'll record it now. Record the bloody book. And I thought, well, I'll do this with Dickens. And they said, well, do Great Expectations. That's a very well-liked and well-respected one. And so there's 20-plus hours of that book was done as an audiobook, which is out there. And then I thought, well, I'll use my performing skills to do a, one, a solo show of Dickens. So I'm now doing six shows. Uh, a memorial for my old head teacher, Peter Pymont. He was a big fan of Dickens, and he died, unfortunately, this year. And the profits are going to camilla's bookshop in eastbourne which is one of those wonderful lost bookshops you know where the books are everywhere and uh it was fire damaged by some idiot setting fire to things and and it's now been rebuilt phoenix like it so we thought we'd uh, give them the money so it's, it's a beautiful thing to be here at the time of covid doing covid safe productions i listened to believe me
1: your, all right yes your the, recent book with... or a few years back on audiobooks yeah, the way to le-
2: the way to read it, I say, is to uh, do well the way. It is right.
1: the way to read it, particularly with you, Eddie, because you do your own footnotes, which yeah. you so you actually comment on your own comments, which is just footnotes on footnotes. Related. Yes, but in it, there's a line in there that made me laugh. I bore myself with my boringness, and you spend a lot of time at the start saying you've got a very boring life, yep. and which
2: is why you make yourself do really interesting things. Do you actually <laughs> think that you're boring? I don't think I have a very boring life. I think I am a naturally boring person. I think it's actually a gift. I'm opening a, a bottle of water here. Sorry. this is. There you go. <laughs> <This> sounds like <laughs> BBC sound effects. Um, now, I am transgender, and if you look at critics over the years, they've said, outrageous, idiots, and they use this word outrageous to cover up the fact they don't want to kind of admit that I'm transgender. And I'm not outrageous. The one thing I'm not, I mean, I might say things in stand-up which have been out there you know like i have a theory of the universe in which is kind of out there and i don't believe in uh, a mystical god and i don't think these are necessarily out there things but uh i just i'm not that out there but i think i'm naturally boring and i think that is a, a plus
1: there's a story from your book about the watch given to you by your mum on yes. your 18th birthday will you tell me about the watch and how that felt
2: yes well We were just like any family, two kids growing up. Dad worked, um, he was an accountant, an unqualified accountant. He refused to get qualified because he said the qualifications don't help me in what I'm doing. He didn't tell me and my brother this until after university times because he was very keen that we went to university. But he'd worked his way up by reinventing how to do accounting in refineries. And we were born in Yemen. He took a post in Aden, which is in fact Aden, If you're Arabic, it's Aden. I don't know why the British had to say Aden. Anyway, I suppose they just wrote it down with an A. And uh, my mum was a nurse there, and they met and married. So brother was the one that I was born there. So it was from there to Northern Ireland refinery. He was chief accountant there. And mum was alive, and then... Suddenly we moved from Northern Ireland. We were having a great time hanging out with the kids. We talked like this. When I was three, four, five, I sounded like this. My brother sounded like this. Mom was freaked out, apparently, because the kids were sounding different to the parents. So we were encouraged to actually speak English-sounding in the house, and we were Irish-speaking outside the house, which I didn't know until recently. A friend told us that Dad had mentioned it to him, a work colleague, that we would code switch at the front door. The kids we tied like this to the kids, so we did, and then we came in. I remember saying this wee thing, and that wee thing when I was very small, because you pick it up. And I would have been very happy to have been a Northern Irish kid, so salutes to Northern Ireland. And uh, then we went to Wales, and then Mum suddenly died. Now we knew she was ill, but when you're a kid, you get ill, you get well, you get ill. I had measles, I got well after that. I didn't know Mum was dying. We didn't know. They decided to do it that way, so we would enjoy being with Mum all the time and not be sad before the fact. And then suddenly she'd gone, and then we learned later that there were these watches. And in the last Christmas of 67, Mum had gone out to the shop. Dad had an Omega watch, and Mum bought two watches, one for my brother, one for me, to get on our 18th birthday. I felt very moved
1: when I read that in the book.
2: Did your dad give it to you? Did you know it was coming? Or yes, did we knew it was coming. Yeah, we saw, we'd seen them, but we got them on 18th. And then I was scared to wear it with that losing it and at the moment I'm wearing a sports watch because I've been doing run training this morning because then you can't wear the Omega and do the run training because it, it's a classic, it, it winds itself up by the movement of your, yeah. your hand so I wear it for special occasions now I was
1: going to say you can't wear that, out. there's a solemnity to receiving it that means you need to keep it safe and
2: well I need to keep it safe but I also need to wear it I think so yeah. I just need to wear it for I think business days work days, you know, politics is coming I want to get elected as an MP then I can wear that more but then I will still be going running And my run watch, my Garmin watch does tell me, you know, the heart rate and all that kind of stuff. The running.
1: Yes. You won't remember this, but when I was uh, just elected deputy leader of the Labour Party, you told me about a sugar-free lifestyle that you were leading. Yeah. It was great for your health, which started me on a learning journey, which meant that I gave up sugar and ultimately lost eight stone. Yes. However, I've not run many dozens of marathons like you. Tell me about the marathon running.
2: Well, the marathon running, when I was a kid, I was a very runabout kid. Not all kids are that, but I was, and I like that, and I live for football. It's interesting, as a, as a trans person, I feel like I'm a male tomboy, or I am a, just a t- tomboy because I, I feel like I'm a trans woman now, and I'm sort of basing that. But I have girl mode and boy mode. I consider myself um, gender fluid. But um, so anyway, as any woman could be very runabout when she's a young girl, and I was a very runabout boy. I love football and then I got into my teenage years went to a school this the second school Eastbourne College they didn't play football they played rugby and then hockey field hockey which has its place hockey lovers but it can't take the place of football which is the beautiful game the game didn't we invent football surely I, to all strange schools that don't play football play football you you just got to anyway. um so I didn't do anything like that and then later on I was because I'm obsessional to get things done, to get my career going, which didn't start till I was 30. I used to push, 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 push. And I found not only was I obsessional in trying to get things going, but I would also eat obsessionally or drink obsessionally or whatever obsessionally. And I had no break on things. And I had very sweet tooth as well. So then I realized I had, there was a photograph of me on holiday, and I thought, I'm looking very large here. I need to do something about that. Then I started to try and do gyms and things, and I didn't get on terribly well with that. And then I thought, well, if I make it an adventure, I mean, Sport Relief was saying, are there any people who are non-sporty like to come and do things? And I thought I should go with the Sport Relief and why don't I do something massive and I'll run around the country and then I can lose weight. The big idea was I was gonna lose weight, which I didn't actually do on the UK 43 marathons because I was eating carbohydrate like crazy. The idea was high carbs, low fat at that time. And then when I ran in South Africa in 2016, which is 27 marathons, 27 days salute to Nelson Mandela, who spent 27 years in prison, and I never thought I'd done enough to salute him, so that was that salute. And I did high fat, low carb, and I looked much better at the end. I thought, okay, so it is, you can eat fat now, you can eat the skin on chicken, you can have butter. But it's the carbs you watch out, that sugary carb thing. And I'm, I I'm—I know the more I eat sugar, the more I want sugar. The less I eat it, the less I want it. It's very cumulative. It's cumulative both ways. And I haven't had much sugar now for some time. And so I'm just not bothered. I've even had Earl Grey tea. Last couple of days I've had Earl Grey tea with no milk, which I thought before was, eh, pear. But now I can do it because my palate is getting... Normalized, and I think if you put sugar, anyone listening to this, if you and Tom, you must have gone this the same. The less, would you agree with the less that sugar you eat, the less you kind of. want Oh yeah, to eat? I
1: can't. I feel like I've got a richness of a palate back. So mm. dark chocolate is
2: explosive in my mouth. Whereas yeah. before it was
1: a dead taste.
2: And no one tells you this when you're a kid. And some people, some annoying people, usually quite thin people, they say, "Yes, I had a bar of chocolate." Like this. Oh, I don't even. I don't really like sweets. <laughs> damn, damn. Because I could, I could go into a sweet shop and literally work my way through all those old jars you know the old sweet shops like I could go through jar after jar like the sherbet dabs and the one of those ones that um, multicolored ones gobstoppers. anyway I didn't have a very good break system at all so if I'm going to be obsessional I'm trying to be obsessional with fizzy water okay drink fizzy water drink tea with oak. we now have oat milk, coconut milk all these other weird milk do you run every day I try and run every day I do hit training which people yeah. should look up high intensity in- interval training which is sprint Recover, sprint, recover, sprint, recover, sprint, recover. You do that about 10 times before breakfast. Do it fasted, as they call. You can have a cup of coffee or something, but don't have anything. Then you do some sprint training, and then you eat breakfast, and it gets the metabolism going. So that's what I do generally. I've got to do a half marathon this weekend, and then next weekend I'll do a full marathon, and the next weekend I'll do a half marathon. That's what I'm on now. One a week. The most I've run is ten kilometers. Yeah, but I'm ready to go to the next level. Mm. And before you did ten k, you didn't believe you could probably do ten k. Yeah? I didn't
1: believe I could do a k. Yeah. I could. I yeah. couldn't. When I first started, I couldn't run between one lamppost and the next. So the gains are great, but going to a marathon from ten k seems
2: like we well, don't go go to twenty one k, which is a half marathon. You just went out and ran dozens of. Yeah, marathons but I all. am ridiculous. You see, my gift. I think if you do really hard things, positive things, you get given this extra gift. And when I came out as transgender, which is 35 years ago, um, I didn't know this, but I was given the gift of analysis because I had to self-analyze. What am I? If you think about, it, if anyone was alive back in '85 or an adult, you know, thinking about things, it was toxic. Being transgender was toxic in '85. Five years later, still toxic. 1990, '95, toxic. 2000, 2005, 2010, 2014. There was a tipping point, which people might have sensed this happened, it didn't? May not have known when it was. It was 2014. Three things happened in America. Uh, There was a series called Transparent, about transgender, which won Golden Globes. There was Caitlyn Jenner coming out front cover of Vanity Fair. And um, Laverne Cox is a black uh, trans woman activist, and she was on Orange is the New Black. She got, uh, I think, Time, Person of the Year, or whatever, space, but she got the front cover. And so suddenly, 2014, a whole bunch of things happened, or a few things happened, and it sort of shifted, I feel. But anyway, when I came out in '85, I self-analysed tried to analyze why I felt the way I felt. In the end, I decided that guilt and shame were not my responsibility because this is built in, but I haven't got all the answers. So I'm just going to come out and I'll fight whatever fight I have to fight. In the streets, verbal abuse, I've had a lot of that it's got a lot better and if you get better known of course people are easier with you and running the marathons was also good because if you're going to be transgender and, you're, and then you're running marathons that's people go oh well surely I thought oh okay but I got this gift of analysis so the analysis thing was what I could use on things like take food but what what am I doing with food that's all wrong so analyze what's going on there and start reading up about it how to be a stand-up comedy I couldn't be a stand-up comedy I was a street performer before that and I, I couldn't do street performing either so I've analyzed that and then dramatic acting I had to analyze what I was doing wrong I always start very bad and I think all I've learned to do is what probably a lot of us can do and World War II is a good example most people went into World War II if you take it from the democratic countries that went in um, we weren't brainwashed, but people said, I want to learn how to do this, to be a, a secret agent, to be a commando. You know, this is women and men, w- women on, on AKAK guns and stuff. A lot of stuff was done that, that they didn't think they were going to ever do, and they said this is necessary to train it. The emergency situation will encourage people to say, I, w- I will go and learn this because it's an emergency. I felt it was an emergency to come out in 1985. I thought I should do this. P- a personal
1: I'm... emergency? Yes, a... a personal
2: yeah. emergency. I... I that it's in there, it's either a lie that I'm going to lie throughout my life, and you know how much lying goes on in this world. And I thought, well, let's tell the truth about this. Let's say This is it, this is happening. And I was trying to get my career going, and I thought this could have actually just wiped up my career. I actually came out twice, in a way, because I came out to my family and friends, well, to my friends, not my dad. And Then six years later, I came out to my dad, and then I told the press about this because I was doing stand-up. But the analysis was the gift that I was given to it, which I've used on other things now. And do you feel... Vindicated
1: for the stance you talk, or do you feel a great sense of responsibility now that trans rights is being discussed almost on a daily basis?
2: Um, I think vindicated quite strong uh, response. I, I don't know if I think, it resp- what's the word? Responsibility doesn't quite feel the word because I don't feel it's like, what I'm trying to do, what I realized when I came out was I am just not going to march up and down the streets. Yeah. I was not going to be really the activist, the active activist. What I was going to do was I was going to do my thing, which was stand-up comedy, and I was going to talk about it and express myself and use it indirectly, and I could talk about it on TV shows or whatever, you know, interview shows, but that was it, I'm just gonna carry on, because I thought what needs to happen with trans is that we needed, the word wasn't there, people say, sure you were transvestite, well transvestite, transgender, it's the same thing, transgender is the overarching name, and I worked that out, before when I was young, but I, we needed to be part of society. We were outside society in, in 85. We were just strange, weird, negative, toxic. some Very negative words, you could come up with other words. But I thought we needed to be part of society. And my boringness, I think, is the thing that knits me into society because hopefully when I talk here or if you see me on a chat show or just people meet me in the streets or here in the hotel or outside running along, people go, oh, no, oh, yeah, what, nice weather, isn't it? Yes. And you just chat away and they go, well, they they seem all right, and I am just—I'm just like my father really. My father used to chat to everyone, and I'm happy to chat to everyone. And I think that maybe it's not boring. This is not the right word, but it's—it's it's kind of ordinariness. There's a distinct ordinariness in ordinariness, me, but yeah. I'm trying to do things which are extraordinary to impress myself above all, so that I go, wow, how? Because when I run a training marathon, I find it tough, and I think, how do I do this day after day? When I do these, because the last time I went in February, I did 29 marathons, and I thought. You know, the first 10 are always hellish. And then after that, you just, your brain gets, okay, okay, we do this, we do this, we can do this. You said that the body gets used to it, which is what I'm
1: banking on when I finally get there. Yeah,
2: and it's the mind gets used to it as well because the body gets more used to it and then the mind. Because now I know if I don't do something for a while, if I can't train for a while, then I go back out and I can pick up that level of training quite quickly. Yeah. Why did it take you six years longer to tell your dad, by the way? Because mama died years before. I was... I was advised, it may break him. It may yeah, break it your dad. Mean, yeah. And I thought, it? Uh, and time ticked on. I thought, no, I can't. I can't I, I've got to talk about it. Because my stand-up career wasn't, didn't exist over those six years. I did four years of street performing. Then I started stand-up in 88. And then by 91, that's the six years later. So end of 91, I thought, it's taking off. I can feel it taking off. I've got to tell dad. Because and then I can tell the press. Yeah. So I told dad on a Saturday at a Crystal Palace football match cuz sport cuz we have he had always had two tickets my brother would go sometimes i would go sometimes and it was when to tell dad you know during the match no cuz you know, he'd go you're transverse transvestite, and then the, <laughs> and then as we're leaving and walking away you're transverse you know all the fans around it so in the end it was in a in a cafe in Croydon i went into the cafe and there were three tables in the back room one was full two were free we took the middle table and i saw that these people were finishing their meal then they went out and i thought another you know, a pe- group of people could come in and take a table at any point. This is the time. I've got a room. I've got dad. Tell him now. And I told him. And I was p- quite prepared that we would never talk again. And, uh, but he was good. He wrote a letter back. He said he was okay at the time. And then he wrote a letter later saying, it's tough to say this. He said, I'm okay with this. And if your mum was alive, she'd be okay with it too. Which is, which is kind of an amazing thing. Because I have heard very, very negative things from some parents who are yeah. not strong good characters who have been horrible to their kids, and Dad was exemplary and always very supportive.
1: You know, your mum's obviously huge in your life, and in your book you talk about the things you do to try and get her back. I can see, I can understand the emotional sort of foundation there, but I guess for you, you'd also want to know that your mum would be proud of you.
2: I would hope that mum would be proud. I think so, because she liked performing. She she sang in a choir at uh, Albert Hall, and she liked her music, classical music, and amateur dramatics as well. She did amateur dramatics in Aiden, the Little Aiden Dramatic Society, Lads. There's pictures of her. And she played Princess Yasmin in, in Aladdin in the in the pantomime in there in 1958, Christmas 58, I think it was. Um, so I hope she'd be okay with it. And some people say, ah, well, transgender, that's because of it. And I really don't think so because... I wanted to throw a dress on before mum died. I didn't know mum was ill, so I didn't know she was going. So some people say she died in there four, and I don't think it is. I think all LGBT people, I believe it's genetic, it's inbuilt, we will find it, we will track it down, even though there's been recent reports that, oh, it's less likely. that it, 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 It's something in there, because I didn't choose it. It was just there, and I've just been honest about
1: it. I think in the book you said um, she told your dad you used to play with her garters.
2: Yes. Well, I remember that. Dad said in the, the Believe documentary, Dad says I was wearing her clothes, which as a small kid, I don't know how I got into her clothes. But um, I do remember, you know, being a, very attached to my mother and to I like what she was wearing. And there was a friend who actually had a long, long haired wig. And of course, boys don't have long hair at that time. Short back and sides. And I do remember being fascinated by her long haired wig. My hair is now longer at the moment just because I've got extensions. in. But uh, yeah. Now anyone, any man, actually it's a very interesting time, 2020 as we are, um, because men can have hair whatever long, length they want. And if you think of Native American men, they had very long hair and they were great warriors as well. Because I was trying to think of myself as a feisty person because I did want to be in the forces when I was a kid, which I didn't go into, but I I felt I've been, you know, special forces was where I was trying to get to. But in fact, I've said, and this might be ridicule, but I, I I've done civilian special forces. Coming out as transgender was my... Special Forces mission, because yeah. people will scream at you in the street, attack you in the street. It took courage. And also, as a, someone who's a wannabe lesbian who fancied women, the, I, I could just have lied my entire life. And we know, going back through not even centuries, but through millennia, people have lied, or people have been open about it and have been uh, completely attacked for it and, 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 and murdered for it. But I just thought, this is a fight I should fight. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. the right person to fight this fight, because I'm, I'm very têtu, the French say, just... You know, I'm strong-minded, and I'm just going to push, push, push. Because it's definitely positive to talk about it, be honest about it. It's definitely better than, than hiding and sticking your head in the ground.
1: None of the things you've talked to me
2: about your ordinary life are ordinary,
1: nor is it boring. Which is why I find it funny you always describe. But
2: the base level is boring. You see, like um, I'm having a tea here and I have a water, and I'm not saying I want some cocaine and thing. I'm not going to have you know I, I think cocaine would have been my perfect drug because I'm so obsessional so I realized don't go there mm. but I'm just kind of you know some people are maybe it's a front that they put on if you get into performance but it, they might seem that they seem outrageous outlandish I'm not outrageous and outlandish if you're in rock and roll then you need to be that probably most people aren't that outrageous but in certain areas you're you're supposed to be more, more outrageous and I, I'm just my base level is kind of but I am trying to impress myself by doing things that... You know, gigs in French and German and Spanish, improvising in French and German, which I recently did, I didn't even know that was possible. I mean, it logically it's possible. French people must do it. But that gave me such joy. It's extraordinary, that. But also, okay, so your theory of the
1: universe... Yes. ..is logical. Yes. It's logi- tell me about the theory of the universe. Um, this, this is what really fascinates me. I'm a-
2: say it in, in, a, in a short... I've been talking to... Um, uh, experts on this, I talked to Professor Brian Cox about this, and he said the things I'm saying are not crazy. If I try and get it into just a few lines, into a paragraph, I've removed gods from all of this, and then people believe in gods. Okay, but who created the god? Did God get up one morning and say, "I'm going to create myself today"? It doesn't make any logic. And I think the universe goes from a big bang to a big crunch, big bang, big crunch. It, like it, 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 Everything comes together and smashes together and then blows out again around the whole universe and then comes back again and blows out. And my microcosm version of that is what happens with the shifting plate system, which nobody believed in, but a, a German... A meteorologist came up, Alfred Wegener, he came up with the idea that it's shifting plates, and now we know, oh, it is true. And those shifting plates, they come together as a supercontinent, which is the big crunch, and then they blow apart again, and they move all around the world in a very slow state, and that's what happens in a very slow way out in the universe. If you think of where's the center of the surface of the Earth, there is no center of the surface of the Earth. We're always at the center, right here in Eastbourne is the center of the surface of the Earth, because it's equidistant going left, right, even though it's not a perfect circle, because we're spinning, but they're all curves in the universe. So I think if the moons are curved, the planets are curved, the suns are curved, the trajectories are curved, the, the galaxies are curved, then I think the universe is curved. Because there was this endlessly expanding universe, and now there's an idea that it could, it could be a looped universe. And I also came up with this idea that I think that now these are conjectures and hypotheses as opposed to proven theories that I think that every point in the universe is the center of the universe. Like every point of the earth is the center of the surface of the earth. And if you go off in one direction for a long time in the universe, you will come back to that point from the other direction. And if you go off in that, any direction, you go off and you'll come back from the opposite direction. Just like on the earth, if we go off north, south, west, you will, if you just keep that thing, you will come back to the same point. So I just think there is no meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? There is no meaning of life. We have to put meaning into it. I think there are no gods because a god surely would have come down in World War II, 60 million dead. If if God's not coming down to help us when 60 million are dying, then they're never coming. They either hate us or they're not there. And I think it's polite to say that God does not exist. I think it's more rude to say that God does exist and he's a complete bastard. (laughs) So I think we have to put it in. This is why, you know, we did the 1930s politics, and now we seem to have gone all the way around to trying 1930s politics again. I'm trying to drag everyone towards the 2030s, encourage everyone to move towards the 2030s, while some uh, politicians are saying, no, let's go back to the 1930s, where lying can be a tool of politics. And I just think that's, that's wrong. We can't go back to those days of the 1930s. I've been trying to avoid politics yeah. questions, but I'm going on to them
1: now. There's a contrasting thing with your theory of the universe, you see. Your theory is a very ordered, rules-based universe.
2: I wouldn't say ordered, but I'd I'd say random things, having things smashing together, going off in all directions, but just no one planning it.
1: Yeah, uh, okay, so that may be, that's maybe your theory of humanity, because also in your book you talk about the impermanence and uncertainty of people, and that's why you always want a no-surprise planned next stage. And clearly you're at a point in life now where... You know, we've come out of Brexit, you've take, you're looking at political activism, you're
2: reflecting on... I want to be a up. member of parliament. I was trying to get in in the last election. Yes, yeah, so I absolutely definitely want to get in on a by-election or next election. Tell me about that. Why do you actually want to enter the world of politics? Because I think, I think you've got to do three things in, in politics. You've got to have a vision for the world, a world vision... And I think there are a lot of negative world visions going on saying, hey, let's try nationalism again. Let's say us number one and everyone else can take the the other route. And I think, no, my worldview is that everyone should have a fair chance in life. That single statement, everyone deserves to have the fair chance in life. Not a free life, but a fair chance that whatever background they come from, they have a fair chance. And that's all 7.7 billion of us. That's what I'm fighting for. And because I've been through such uh, an unusual trajectory to get to here, I feel that... I can think in this very macro way. Everyone in life, we know we're all the same. We were 20,000 people 200,000 years ago. We're now 7.7 billion people. If we don't learn to live together, work together in some shape or form, we're not going to make it. I think the 21st century is the key century. This is the coming of age of humanity. And we will, if we get through this century, then we, we will get through it by learning to live together, work together in some shape or form. If we all start going back into the 1930s nationalism and saying, hey, I've lied about this, let's put 350 million pounds a week into the NHS. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. It's a lie. It doesn't matter. It's a fundamental lie. No, it doesn't matter. We won the referendum because of it. And if you just march on and no one seems to care, then I, I think there's a whole bunch of people out there who are saying, this is not right. We need to be heading towards a more positive future. Um, so I will fight for that I've got a lot of energy I feel I can communicate you've got to be able to analyze systems you've got to be able to communicate and you've got to have a world vision and my world vision is positive it's, it's for everyone I feel I can communicate because I've been communicating through comedy and drama and politics for act, being an activist for over 10 years and I feel I can put ideas forward, you need to put them forward in a grabbable way for people. But there's also analysis, you need to analyze systems and be able to say, okay, this system is good, let's keep it going, this system is half good, let's dump that old bit and adjust that, and then this system is no good at all, we need a completely new system, you need to be able to do that. And we're heading towards automation, where time people are gonna be losing jobs, quite apart from COVID, the, the unemployment that's coming up here, there's gonna be even more unemployment through, through automation. If we're not heading forwards to a more positive future, I just don't think we're going to make it as human beings. There have been five great mass extinctions on the planet, not due to us, we could make the next one. And it's not guaranteed. If you believe in a God, you think well, it's all going to go on fine forever. I don't believe in anyone looking after us because World War II is my proof. He, she, it would have come down and said, what's this guy with the moustache doing? Flick him off the board. Let's get rid of him. Why couldn't he get a COVID? Why couldn't he die of mustard gas attack when he was attacked in World War One? A God would have worked that out. I think Hitler had actually two younger siblings who died in childbirth. And, and surely they should have lived and Hitler should have died. It's Anyway, so I don't think anyone's coming to help us. It's up to us and it's up to the goodwill of us. I think there's more goodwill than ill will in the world. And I want to bring my analysis, my energy, my positive feeling towards people. And I think most people are good. I just don't like the right wing because they come with hatred. They do hatred first. They bring it first and then you tend to hate them back. But I'm a live and let live person. But I want to make this world, I want to make the 21st century the first century rather than the last century for humanity. See, I was,
1: smi- I was smiling all the way through that, ma- mainly because obviously now that I'm an ex-politician and there's nothing more ex than an ex-politician, I- I've had a lot of people ask advice about standing for political office or doing that, and, I- and I've always... I've basically said don't do it. Yeah. But with you, Eddie, in your book you wrote about stamina, patience and determination getting you through in your creative career... And you use that phrase, it's a very clever phrase. You say you always take the path of most resistance in order to get somewhere.
2: Yeah, that, that is weird. I didn't want to. When I was young, I wanted to take the path of least resistance. I wanted to take off career at 16. It happens to, to a number of people. But I think the fact that I dropped out of uni at 19 and I, made it at, I started making it at 30, those was 11 years. Or if you go further back at school here, I saw a play when I was seven. I thought I want to do that. And I couldn't get into school plays even. So even... As either starting at seven or starting at 19, and the the huge the wilderness years, as I call them, and I Churchill had his later, but I have mine straight off the bat, and they were actually that that taught me stamina to keep going, keep positive, and try and keep your head happy while you're going through this difficult period. And I'm sure if when slash if I get elected as a uh, as an MP, you know I have to take it easy. You don't don't run at things. Because I did try running at things much earlier, but if you go slowly towards, I think this is for any good advice for anyone. Just feel your way in, and uh, and then see see how things go. But I want to bring, I want to go into that, and I'm not playing around. It. Some people might think it's just a thing I'm saying, but I'm very serious about this.
1: No, I know you're serious, and I've seen you come. Well, I have campaigned with you. I've been in a car with you in a general election where we're going from constituency to constituency. The other thing, though, that interests me about you is you're a values-led politician. You wear ideology lightly, although obviously... ...some kind of notion of a fair economy underpins what you do. And the fact that you stood out against hate and prejudice for who you are... ...and you met that with what I would say is generosity, kindness and love. I would actually
2: say they're profoundly
1: Christian values and come from a Christian God that you don't believe exists.
2: Oh, yes, I, I can work with religious leaders. I'd say my values are actually Christian values, Islamic values, Jewish values, um, Hindu, anyone, because the golden rule in all the major religions is treat other people as you would like to be treated yourself. If we did that tomorrow, the world would work instantly. And that's what I believe in. I just don't believe in the mystical guy upstairs working it all out. I just don't think he's there. He slash she or the flying sandwich they may be. I just think it's us because if you think about it, Yeshua, who the Greeks called Jesus, he was a modernizer who said, okay, Jewish faith, great, but we seem to have lost our way here. Let's get back to the birds and the bees They get on right, you know, if you're plowing the field. He was trying to simplify the message there and then that got turned by... Saul slash Paul into a different faith but that's where he was a modernizer of that message if you think about Muhammad he was modernizing he talked to the Jewish and the Christian elders and said this has lost its way let's do a more modern version of that and then the people who come after them say ah what they were really saying was this and if you don't agree with what my interpretation I'm going to kill you you know Spanish Inquisition or um if there are any jihads going on there you know that I think Muhammad said don't draw a picture of me because he didn't want to become the son of God. He said, I am a prophet. And he saw that Yeshua slash Jesus had become this son of God, which he wasn't set up as. He never said he was that. It was the people after who said, ah, he's coming straight down. So I think that's what Muhammad did cleverly. Very intelligent guy, Muhammad. And he set that up. And then people said, okay, if you draw a picture of him, we're going to murder you. And that's not what he said. So it's, you know, I would like to be able to work with all religious leaders who ever think treat other people as you'd like to be treated yourself. But I just will disagree on if there is a mystical being upstairs. who used to live in the clouds, if you remember, until we learned to fly, and then we noticed that he wasn't in the clouds, but no one ever mentioned that ever again, because he was definitely in the clouds. He was. <laughs> and no one's ever just talked about that. There should have been, whoa, we got that wrong. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds,
0: and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
1: career of stand-up writing and serious acting to go into politics yeah i don't need your
2: advice i'd like to be an actor
1: right what do i have to do are
2: you serious yeah it's actually for acting you should i would say you need to do a one person show up at the edinburgh festival that's something you could put on you could set up yourself i'm not saying that doing a one person show will get you Uh, Acting is, but it's probably the easiest way to get yourself one experience because what you need is hours on stage, hours in front of the camera, and that's very difficult to do. How do you persuade anyone to do that? I mean, a lot of us have spent, you know, years, Years, sometimes decades, trying to just get your foot in the door. So it's a tricky thing if you want to do that. You talk about this idea of an emotional corridor, particularly on
1: stage, where you've got a range you can go through in character.
2: Now, that I haven't heard of people talk... That may exist out there in in a dramatic world. That's more for... The emotional corridor is more for uh, theatrical work. But I did find that if you're doing the same performance again and again and again and again, people get locked into... A musicality, a tone that they will do every time they say that line. Well, I am not going to go there. Well, I'm not going to go there. Well, I'm not. They just say it that way rather than well, I'm not going to go there. Or you, you can do emphasis on different places or whatever. Or you can just be in the. It's not that it's, it's all about how you say the line, but where you are mentally as you say the line. And I found that you could actually come to a scene tighter, looser more angry less angry you could put emotions into it which would affect the way that you said the lines each day and i was doing this in a certain production and i found that it could it would some of the other actors might have found it, well, you're saying that differently to how you said it yesterday, yeah. but I wanted to keep it alive. So, And I found this in stand-up that I, I do this thing of molten material where I keep it, it's never quite set so that each time you do it, it can live. Otherwise, it becomes like a prayer and concrete. If you think of any religious prayer, there is no joy in those prayers. And if someone who is religious, and I encourage people of, the, of probably the Protestant, even the Catholic of the Christian faith, which is one I... Had given to me at school, even though we had no religion at home. When they say that the Lord's Prayer, "Our Father, who Art in Heaven," if people, you know, the, the the vicar, the pastor, the whatever, the bishop said, say the Lord's Prayer, but please say it in your own words. I mean, probably it would just you get nothing coming out. But if you instead of saying "Our Father, who Art in Heaven," you say, uh, "Oh, a mystical, holy person who who is who lives up in the heavens, uh, give us." Please, can I have some food today? That would be great, and I will be thankful for it. And if you put it into your own words, then you'd st- it'd start to mean something. It's great meaning, yeah. Yeah, but if it's, if it's a prayer, it becomes concrete. And that can happen with a repetitious play or a stand up set, which is said over and over again. In um, film, it's different because quite often they don't rehearse. So that if you do three, four takes, 10 takes, Kubrick used to do 50 to 100 takes, you will get one that's, that's beautifully different and just feels, whoa, they're just so there. And and that's the thing about what I love film. Is it's it's like playing when you were a kid. You used to play in the street, you know, cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. Uh, and now they just put a camera on you. And in Six Minutes to Midnight, which is set in Bexhill, we filmed it in Wales. Um, the Welsh Film Unit wonderfully gave us deals on money and we did a lot of casting. And we did a lot of locations, stunt casting of Wales for Sussex. But I said, can we have one day of shooting in the Bexhill-Eastbourne area? And we did. So down from where I used to go to school, bead School here, on the beach there's a, a scene on the beach there and I'm on the beach where I used to play as a kid and up on a place called Pinnacle Point where and you'll see it flashes by and the scene it's about I don't know a minute and a half of the film but I got to, to actually really play a serious you know a, a role that was happening and being filmed but do it right next to where I was a kid and playing around I did that yes, for you yeah. It was beautiful. It was, I, I said it was maybe one of the most wonderful days of my life, which, which somebody looked at me askance and said, really? But it was. It was like, it was like being a kid at seven, thinking, I want to act, because I'd seen a kid do this play. And I think I wanted to act, because Mum had died recently, and the audience were giving such affection. I, I felt that was an affection swap from my mother's love to the the love of the audience, which is not an unconditional It, was, it is a conditional love from an audience. If you do bad, they won't give it to you. But if you do good... Yeah. Um, and the mothers might be more lenient on that. But that was the age of seven. So it was about, I don't know, 45 years later, I was on the beach right down from where I used to go, you know, sometimes in the water there, because it's a bit craggy down there, sometimes looking for shells in rock pools. And I was just lying on the beach in a dinner jacket. And Then the police came looking for me and I go <laughs> running from the police across the old pools, the limpet pools.
1: Eddie, I could talk to you all day. Thank you very much. You're a good man. And you're going to make
2: a difference in the world. Good man slash woman. Sorry, I shouldn't. No, no, it's very my fault tricky. fault for not saying it. What no. do I say? How no. Do, how don't. do you
1: like to be referred to? You're a good Eddie. Good Eddie. I know you have girl days and boy days, but I'd never... Well, I have
2: girl on. and boy mode, which some people may disagree with, but because I am gender fluid. But, you know, I'll say this in finishing. that: If you analyze what is masculine, what is feminine, you, there's n- almost nothing in there. You could say, OK, m- men can be great athletes. Well, women can be great athletes. too. Oh, yeah, they can be fantastic athletes. OK. And men can be strong characters. Women can be strong characters. Women are... Fantastic. Oh, yeah, that's true. Very determined? Oh, they're women too. Um, astronauts, oh, those women too. Uh, sports people, there's nothing. There's nothing in there except the ability to build muscle mass. It's easier if you have more testosterone in your body. True. Apart from that, nurturing, caring, men, women can do that. Um, you know, physically you can't have a child, but you can bring that child up as a single male parent. My dad was a m- dad was. mother slash father to, to us. Yeah. So I'm in that place. I, I, my, my character doesn't really change. Um, but I now sort of go as Ms. Eddie Izzard. That's where I've sort is of that or Is that recently? Yeah, that's recently. Yeah. Uh, sure. I just thought it looked quite nice because I've got it on my credit card. So You know, and obviously there's a lot of people and there's, there's, there's pressures and things and whatever. But I'm just going to keep trying to be positive and be gender fluid. And I was based in boy mode up to, say, my turning, turning 50. And so I'm now going to be based in girl mode from now on. But I can still go into films and be boy mode. And, and do you
1: sort of wake up and feel in boy mode? Is no, it, no, uh, it's so just I feel just me.
2: So it's a sort of conscious decision to you know. Well, I'm I'm consciously deciding to be based in girl mode now. So every day I get up and I just sort my makeup out and throw yeah. on a dress and off I go. But when I do the press for six minutes to midnight, I will go back to boy mode. Otherwise they will go. So what? Hang on, and yeah,
1: you end up with a series of complicated
2: questions yes. where you can't explain the film. But yeah, they, I did. They did ask me. And I said, well, i prefer to be she and her if I am in, in girl. You know, I'd prefer to be she and her. But if people can't do that, okay, if they, just, they can go. I respond to mate, or mate, or Eddie.
1: Yeah, I'm very sorry for being there. Uh, no, no, no. I should, I should have been more sensitive to language. No, but uh, I, just, language you know, I just say slash.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Good man <laughs> slash woman. You know, and w- if the cognitive revolution was 70,000 years ago, I'll leave you with this. Uh, that's the point where they worked out. Uh, brain power is the most important thing. So women should have been on equal pay with men from 70,000 years ago. That's when it should have happened. Yeah. Not struggling to now, but yeah. 70,000 years ago. Because, oh, I've got a big muscles. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter. It's, it's got nothing to do with it. It's, uh, are you intelligent? Are you wise? Can you help? You've got uh, fortitude, courage, determination. All these are human attributes. And tigers never give a monkeys about whether we're male or female, do they? If, if a tiger decides to attack you and have lovely lunch of you, they, they never go, I'm, I'm gonna eat, this, I think it's a man, a woman, I'm not sure, I haven't checked, yeah. if it's male, or female, got, got a long hair, but it could be, you know, they don't, they don't care. And we don't care, the tiger. I'm being attacked by a male, or it could be a female tiger, I, I'm not sure which sex <laughs> the tiger is attacking me, it's male. We get so obsessed about it because we get crowbarred into these different areas yeah but um you know like the whole toilet situation if you just make everything cubicles throw all the urinals throw them all away and just put all cubicles and everyone shares then all the queues go down the queues and in things in cinemas and and theaters they all everyone shares it everyone behaves better they've tried it in schools and bullying goes down yeah it's i call it regression of technology because the urinals go out the window but then everyone comes and they either straighten their hair or sort their hair out or they do their makeup, whatever, and everyone behaves in a much better way. It's, and some people will disagree with that, but I think it is the way forward. We already do it in airplanes. We share the losing airplanes, we share them in restaurants. I, and I've
1: just rode the length of Britain for a TV program that's going out. You rode it? In a rower, right. an ocean rower. Right. And there were teams of six very primitive conditions on the rowing boat right. and we were doing maximum of 36 hours stretches at sea so we basically shared a bucket and a bottle and it was a very egalitarian experience and everyone was really self-conscious about it but by the end of it no one cared yeah. it was a total leveler and there that
2: links go. into how the romans the romans had open door ch- have a chat policy we the victorian's i think have made it very prissy and very yeah. you know problematic but it's it's just a human Thing we do, and it's, it's just waste products. So we need to get over ourselves. There you go. There you go. Lovely to talk. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thank you.
1: So that was Eddie Izzard One of the most fascinating human beings I've had the pleasure of meeting in life. I could spend days talking to Eddie. He's so interested. From theories of the universe to childhood memories to the art and science of acting, to ideas for changing the world. There's passion and integrity and honesty and thoughtfulness in everything Eddie does. I don't say this about many people, but I hope one day that Merz Izard MP will be a real thing. Because I think that Eddie really can change the world with honesty, kindness, generosity and integrity. And that's something that is a very rare commodity in public life these days. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest. If you did, do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations. If you like it a lot, please consider giving us a rating. Thanks for listening. Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers are Lucy Pullen and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray.